0: Alright, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Public Speaker Podcast. Today I have a really, really special guest. This is a professional public speaker, someone who's been speaking since 1991. He is in the Speaker Hall of Fame. He has spoken to over 2 million people across 50 countries. So he's a little bit different than a lot of the other guests we've had on this podcast. He's someone who knows a little bit more about what he's doing just because he's older, just because he has a little bit more experience. So, I'm excited to hear some of the thoughts he has on public speaking, and I think anyone listening to this podcast will get some valuable information out of this, something that's a little bit more different than the other podcasts we've had. So, Randy, please tell us where you're from, how you got into public speaking, how it has taken your life on this basically two-decade, almost three-decade journey, and then we'll get into some more stuff.
1: Yeah, I was in the direct selling business, and I started doing training for my team, mm-hmm. Uh never thought about it, never quantified it. I just was like, well, this first rank supervisor, people need to get there quickly. So I created this thing and I called it Supervisor School. It was just me wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes, standing in front of a room with a whiteboard, kind of making points for a day. And then people from other teams started asking if they could attend. And I was like, yeah, give us five bucks for the donuts and the meeting room and, you know, contribute to that. And then people started flying in from out of state. Then people started saying, hey, if we brought you to Illinois, what would it if we bought you the plane ticket and the hotel? How much would you want to come and teach this stuff you're doing? And. And right after about that time, I decided I couldn't work with that company that I had been representing anymore. They were going through some legal challenges. And I just said, you know, I don't want anything to do with that. Right. And I thought, well, I could just do public seminars to other people in other companies who are in this business. Right. I mean, how hard could it be? <laughs> right. So I didn't know that you're supposed to lose money right away when you start. And I couldn't afford to lose money. I needed to eat. So I in those days it was all, you know, postal service. You would rent mailing lists of people in the business. You'd create a mailing and you'd mail it to them and say, okay, Randy's coming to Denver Saturday the twenty third, nine AM to five PM, you know, forty seven dollars, call one-eight hundred-four three-two-gauge and reserve your ticket. Um, and that's how I got into business. I, I had no idea there was such a thing as professional speakers. Um, but probably a week after that decision, somebody uh, who knew what I was doing saying, hey, I got this in the mail. The Florida Speakers Association is is doing a speaker school uh, that they do once a year. You should go to that. And it turns out they were the chapter of the National Speakers Association here in the U.S. Right, and they and so I went, and then I became a member, and I learned, wow, this this there's a whole industry, there's a whole profession of speaking, and that's um, it's interesting. You you in the intro you said he, he's a professional public speaker um, because yeah, we would. We'd say there's a big distinction. A public speaker is somebody who who just does speeches. Maybe they're a guest speaker at their church or they do something at their Kiwanis club or something. But a professional speaker, now you're getting paid. So you think you have to think, okay, I have a responsibility to my audience because I'm a professional now.
0: It's almost like uh, someone who who sings at their church versus a professional musician, right? They're actually getting paid to same money thing, money. yeah. So, this company you were at, how old were you when you in ninety one? Were you just fresh out of college? Oh no,
1: you don't know how old I am. So let me see, I'm sixty now. So I started in ninety one. So oh, that would 30. be yeah. So that's about.
0: So when, you, so when you were 30 and you started training people, what exactly were you training them to do? Just how to sell better, sell the company? Yeah, better? marketing.
1: I was showing them how to be better marketers, how to qualify candidates and uh, make compelling presentations to them.
0: And why and, do you think your teaching methodologies got you all of these requests from people to get better at speaking and presentations? Like what was it about you that you thought that was so good that was different?
1: Um, well, one, I taught practical application stuff. Right. And most people in the business just teach inspirational stuff without wow. any real yeah. how-to context. Right. Uh, and then I, was, I worked really hard to promote myself. So to give you an idea, my first year in the business, I made $330,000. So you'd say, wow, he was killing it. This but is, here, wait, hold
0: on. This is all off your public seminars that you're
1: right. Okay, got you. So year one, I do three hundred and thirty grand, but right. I live on about eleven thousand dollars. Right, right. Everything right. else I put back in the business, reinvesting, right. buying more mailing lists, more printing, you know, everything. Uh, second year, I do six hundred sixty thousand. I think it was. Oh my. Third year, I broke a million. <clears throat> But it wasn't until the third year that I actually paid myself a salary of, you know, 40, 50 grand a year or whatever, and lived like a a comfortable human being as opposed to just starving in the street, you know. right right. So I really made the investment into my business. That's what grew the business. And, you know, I provided results.
0: (laughs) And so the the 330, the 600 grand, all this is coming from you flying across the country, hosting public seminars and sending out email lists to people that you're coming. And that was the average price was like 40, 50 bucks, right? To get into that seminar.
1: Well, all except there's no email. Email didn't, you know, nobody was using email. This was Um, this thing called envelopes and they, you have to Google this. They were like envelopes. And then there was the a thing they put on called this. Anyway. I got one right here. <laughs>
0: That's amazing, man. So I just want to get your take then on how you see twenty nineteen marketing. Just because you taught marketing, you've been in marketing for a long time. You've marketed yourself pretty professionally. Now, at the at you know at the touch of a button, a hundred thousand people could potentially see this video. That must be mind blowing to you, right? Given what you built when it was much
1: harder. Um, no, it's mind blowing because. It was easier to build back then than it is today.
0: Interesting. And is that because you think the market is way too saturated now and there's no barrier to entry to be
1: able to do? There's no barrier to entry and there's no barrier to the amount of people who are competing for the attention of the people that you're competing for. There is so much white noise. You know, I have a, um, I have a, a real high level coaching program that I have a lot of authors, speakers, coaches, consultants. And I would say 80% of the work I'm doing with those people is how they cut through the white noise, yeah. how they cut through the clutter. Yeah. You know, you've got a podcast. Okay. Well, there's 500,000 other podcasts in the United States right now. Yep. And Probably a thousand more growing every day. You know, how many million blogs are there? So what I'm trying to teach the the, the thought leaders and the influencers I work with is, okay, now you're going to have to really be mindful and you're going to have to break up your day and say, okay, how much of my time am I going to spend creating remarkable content and then how much time am I going to spend promoting my content? Because it's okay. So I got to learn Instagram stories and then I can learn to swipe up things. So they go and that'll send it to my website. And then I need to uh, add video to my tweets and I need to get people to like my Facebook page. And then I need to heat up the algorithm so that, that you know, it shows up in their feed. And so I'm going to do stupid quizzes. Oh, should I get in? iPhone or an Android and trying to get everybody to comment and like, so then I can send them the pitch, you know, and then I should, well, here's the thing you're competing against Nike and Coca-Cola and General Motors and Procter and Gamble. And they have 300 PhD psychologists in a room that they're paying $350,000 a year to track candidates who are watching screens with electrodes on their head and watching where their eyes go on the screen and how they react when they, we show them a puppy and how would they react when we show them mama baking chocolate chip cookies for her children and you know how to emotionally manipulate them and how to get the... You can't compete with that. Right. You can't compete with the search engine optimization. You can't compete with uh Dwayne The Rock, when he puts up his Instagram post promoting Under Armour, you're not going to compete because you have 117 people who liked your last post. Yeah. So you've got to say, okay, and that's why I say this is harder now than it's ever been because... Right. Now and, and so in my case I'm very established I've had 13 good you know best selling books I've got a blog I've got a podcast right so I've built my tribe right so I can uh spend an hour a day promoting my content and I can spend 9 hours a day creating kick ass amazing content mm. But if I was starting out today I would probably have to spend one hour a day creating a kick-ass amazing content and nine hours a day trying to get people to notice my content. And where you are in your career right now is that's the the million-dollar equation for you. You got to say, okay, you know, how much of a tribe have I built so far? Do I have a connection with this tribe? Am I able to um connect with them do i have them on a platform that i own right because if your tribe is just on facebook zuckerberg is going to take it away from you if you know your tribe is just on uh even a podcast right apple decides hey we're going to change the algorithm you're screwed you've got to have an email list a mobile app a text list you've got to have a platform that you own that nobody can get between you and your tribe where you can connect with your tribe. So, because I mean, if, and again, this advice is for people who want to be professional speakers, Absolutely. if somebody's watching this and they're just, you know, they like to give a better talk at the Kiwanis club or the rotary club, they don't have to worry about any of this. Right. But right. if you want to feed your cat, well then you better learn how to get noticed in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's very very tangible and valuable advice. I mean, I think from my perspective it's just quantity of keep keep putting it out there uh, as much as you can. And I mean, there's a little bit of luck involved, right? You have to put out quality content that is meaningful and authentic enough to you. And of course you can put some money behind the YouTube video so that it shows up in more people, but at the end of the day, you got to you got to hope one day someone watches it. And I mean, it, it's it's a longevity game. Along with a creativity game and how can you hack the system type of game? But to me, the cool thing is it's kind of fun to figure out how to hack the system and and get there. Because once you explode, I mean, as you, in 91, like, you're getting people across the country coming to your seminars, which is insane to me, you
1: know? Yeah, it's like in the 70s, the way you hacked the system was you named your company, um, with a with triple, a. triple yeah. a aaron bail bondsman yep because you know that most people don't have a bail bondsman in their rolodex they don't think about a bail bondsman until they get arrested for dui or whatever and then they were going to go to the yellow pages and if you called your business triple a and then aaron with two a's you had five a's you were going to be the first bail bondsman there then it turned in the eighties. We were saying, okay, our nineties, maybe, yeah, probably the nineties. We're saying, okay, how do I get to the top of that Google search when they type in bail bondsman? Right. Yeah. And now it's Instagram, TikTok, you know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, everything, even blogs, podcasts. Again, how, just as you said, okay, how can I hack the system and give myself a better chance that somebody's going to notice what I'm doing?
0: Now, back in the 90s, how many events when you made the 330 and the 660 eventually, how many average events were you doing per year? How many seminars?
1: I used to do about 80 events a year.
0: And they would be all around the country? Yeah. And did you have a team help you organize it or did you just like go show up, rent a place and then have people come?
1: It started with me and then I added one person, then I added two, then I I eventually had about 15 employees. Um, and then I had my midlife crisis right on schedule. And I said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So I, I had a big product division with CDs and DVDs and, you know, all of those kind of, you know, uh, resources. So I sold that and just kept my personal assistant and then said, I want to just be able to do my business from a laptop anywhere in the world, you know, under a palm tree. And What's so I kind reinvented really myself.
0: What did it transform into then if you weren't doing public seminars? Was it just all over the phone coaching?
1: I still do public seminars. I do two major events a year, uh, one of which, by the way, is a speaker school for your podcast listeners. May be interested if they go to randygage.com, or would it be forward slash rockstar, they could see about the next speaking school. So I still do that. Um, more now, I get hired by companies to speak, so I'm doing keynote speeches. Right. Um, and I still have just my personal assistant, and then everything else I just farm out as you know, outside contractors. Right,
0: now I'm curious a lot about this whole business of keynote speaking. So I'm 22 right now, I'm, in, I'm finishing up my last year of business school, and i've been speaking since i was 13 so i did i uh, did speech wow. and debate um in in middle school and high school i ended up getting decently good in the high school i was on the national usa debate team won a lot of speaking awards so i naturally started getting a lot of clients once i graduated high school to help coach um, them at public speaking and <laughs> debate in in particular um i didn't know until like honestly six months ago that there was an entire industry of multinational companies mid-level companies even small companies that would pay people to come in for an hour, ridiculous prices, like twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to ch- talk about whatever their original ideas were. And from the research I've done, and this is what I want you to, to explain if I'm correct on this. The learning and development sector, which is a su- subset under HR in most of these com- uh, companies, basically want to make sure that their employees don't hate going to work. And in order to make sure their employees don't hate going to work they have to invest in training for those employees and that doesn't have to mean technical training or soft skills training that just has to mean enhancing their view of the world on the company's dime so that the employee at Goldman Sachs every year is getting something more that's improving their uh, way that they view the world which is allowing them to professionally develop is that the business of keynote speaking is it just that you have such a good message to share and big companies are willing to pay an extraordinary amount of money to get that into their employee culture and is it truly based on wanting the employees to get an experience from a different
1: type of speaker? Okay. We have to split this off into two different questions cause there's two really important different issues here. Okay, One is what is a keynote speech because yes. 99% of the people in the world don't know what a keynote speech is. And included in that 99% is most professional speakers, okay. right? So um, they'll say, uh, you say, what's your keynote? They say, well, my keynote is the uh, 11 secrets to buying real estate with no money down. Right. No, that's not a keynote speech. That's a seminar.
0: Interesting.
1: Interesting. If they say, okay, my speech is the seven secrets of leadership. No, that's not a keynote speech. That's a seminar. Interesting. Okay. Right. Because a keynote should be a key note. Key is singular. So an amazing keynote speech has one point. Right. So when I'm, if I'm working with you and we're going to sculpt your keynote, right? right. We're going to find what's the one note, the one main point that we want the audience to get. And then we're going to say, what are two or three stories, humor, case studies, examples that anchor the key point? Right, right. So there are literally millions of companies who are hiring speakers to come and do a keynote speech. So they're looking for an opening keynote at the convention to rally the troops, gets everybody excited, kind of set the tone for the event and provide tangible value. Or it might be the closing keynote where they kind of wrap the whole bow around the whole thing, give people their marching orders, have them swinging from the chandeliers and send them out energized, right? Right. And all in the middle of that is probably seminars Um, or workshops. Okay. So when you do the keynote, you come from behind the stage the curtain's open, you come out, it's a show business. You're like a rock star. Yes, exactly. Now, if you're a seminar leader or a workshop leader, you probably come from the back of the room. You get introduced, you come up through the aisle. So let's say you might be doing a workshop. So a workshop would be like a seminar, but people, they actually have a workbook. They're doing exercises. They're you know, participating. So... If you're a workshop leader, you're going around, okay, how are you doing on this exercise? Okay, now I want everybody to break into groups of two or break into groups of three, and I'm going to give you a problem to solve. That's a workshop, right? So, again, most professional speakers, most meeting planners who hire speakers don't really know the distinction. But since yours got a podcast specializing in this, we're going to have your listeners, they're going to know more than even the professional speakers. Absolutely. So, yes, there are millions of companies spending trillions of dollars, pesos, pounds, rubles, yen to bring in professional speakers. Um, but not that much of it is keynotes. A lot of it is more of the seminars. Right. So, now I said your question, we had to branch off into a second one. So the second part you mentioned was, okay, so they're really just hiring you to give people information so they like working there. Right. And sometimes that's true, usually that's not the impetus. So if um, they're, uh, if there's hiring a speaker to come into the HR department, they might want a speaker who's going to do a seminar talking about the new regulations that congress passed last year about uh employee benefits and pension plans and uh you know gender issues and you know does the application just say male female do we have a non-binary you know whatever is changing right? right they may be hiring somebody to come in and speak to the, the CFO and the finance people about new regulations that happened for government, uh, in finance. They may be hiring a trainer to come in and work with the salespeople. If they're auto nation, they're hiring someone to say, Hey, show our people how they sell more cars. If it's, uh, century 21, they're saying, Hey, show our people how they sell more houses. Right. If it's, um, mcdonald's or burger king or nordstrom or macy's or best buy they may be saying hey come and teach our people how to give better customer service right. so a lot of times it's very tangible skills skill uh, skill set training that they want this outside professional speaker to bring in
0: in your experience do those same huge companies hire people to teach their employees public speaking
1: uh not many um but for the ones that it matters yes they do in other words if but usually what you see is they will hire somebody to come in and coach their executives right so in other words they'll say hey the ceo will be the guy who or the gal who hires you because she says, Hey, I have to make a 45 minute presentation to my board of directors, only 12 people, but this is the people who hire and fire me. You know, they own millions of dollars worth of stock. They're trying to decide, am I the leader to take this company forward for the next 15 years? I have to make a presentation of my vision for the company. So they would, you know, or they'll say, you know, we want you to come in. We've got a CEO, president and eight vice presidents, and they need to know how to, you know, we're going to have a convention for all of the sales reps and we want them to be able to speak from the stage. So we need to give them training on how to be a professional speaker.
0: So when you get hired to do keynotes, what is your keynote that
1: you talk most of the companies about? Uh jeez you're going to ask me that. I have let me I'm going to look it up while I'm while I got you here. I have cuz I have three or four that uh based on markets I do a lot of work in still the direct selling space. Yeah. Right? And then I wrote a couple of books which were about predicting the future and so for entrepreneurs so I have entrepreneurial groups that bring me in so they have a different um, topic. So depending on the, but to give you an idea, I'm going to pull up. Okay, so for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or executive teams, uh, I have a speech called Unleashing Your Mad Genius. And that's a speech based on the book I wrote called Mad Genius. Right. Uh, for sales and marketing audience, I have a, a keynote speech called All You Got. And this is, uh, uh, um, showing them that they have what it takes to be successful. It's inherent inside of them. Um, they're, you know, that's based on a story of me getting shot and surviving, getting shot. Right. So that's the main point, the survival of that. My other keynote is called conquer doubt, create destiny and that's going to show them uh, that's one's about kind of prosperity consciousness, how to expand their prosperity consciousness um, to be to allow themselves to be more successful. So the key and then I have workshops and seminars right in the topic areas. Right. But for the keynote, that's a usually 45 to 60 minute inspirational but with a point, a main point, and then I got to anchor that point, and that point has to be relevant and meaningful to the audience.
0: Right. And is and would you say there's something tactical they can take away from those 45 minutes, or is it more mindset?
1: No, it well, mindset is very tactical, right? Yeah, right, but, right. 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 Yeah. To me, I would argue that would mindset agree. is the most tactical, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're a great, if you're an amazing, world-class keynote speaker. There has to be tangible takeaway value. Absolutely. It can't just be a rah-rah. Right. And this is where, like, this would be a really good story for your, your listeners. Okay. Have you put a video? Are they watching this too? Yep, they're watching this. Okay. So really good story. So I do a, a speech. There's like eight or ten speakers in the program. It's one of these multi-day things. And, One of the speakers is a really amazing lady who's won like four or five gold medals in the Olympics. And she wears her gold medals on the stage and she tells the story of winning them. And so I speak, she speaks, it's like lunchtime, we're in the green room and she comes to me and says, I don't understand, how did everybody loved you so much? They gave you this standing ovation. And I just felt like I wasn't uh, reaching them. I felt like, um, you know, I didn't get a standing ovation. I didn't feel that connection. And so what I had to tell her is, in a loving, supportive way, is she just told her story of how she won five gold medals. Well, that, that doesn't relate to anybody in the audience because there's nobody sitting there Who says yeah i next year that's my goal i want to win five gold medals at the olympic they're sitting there saying how do i pay my credit cards what am i going to do for groceries next week or how do i get this promotion or why isn't my child talking to me any longer or what am i going to do about my marriage which is blowing up they've got some issue that right so what you have to do as a speaker is you got to say okay okay whatever your story is it's only relevant if there's a lesson for the audience in that story otherwise you're just beating your chest you might as well just go spray paint your name on the moon who cares okay great you won five gold medals who gives a damn what does that have to do with me now if you can show the cause and effect if you can say okay I know most of you guys sitting in this audience right now are facing this challenge. And then we scope it out what it is. Let me tell you how I dealt with that problem and how it ended up winning me five gold medals in the Olympic. Right. Now you've connected with the audience. Now they say, okay, he's speaking to me or she's speaking to me. This is relevant to my life. But if you just tell the story how you took your company public and became a billionaire, how you won 10 gold medals, how you saved the school bus of children that was falling off the bridge, you know, whatever your heroic, how you climb Mount Everest or how you whatever, who cares? The speaker who gets in there and speaks to the problem of the audience, that's the one that's going to connect.
0: I've heard that a lot, actually. I've heard that the, the, the people who can solve a problem when they're giving a public speech because speaking is making an argument, and an argument is trying to prove something that is true, and in order to do that, you usually have to set up a problem and a solution, and that's where you can get into the stories and examples, but at the end of the day, if you can isolate the problem that your specific audience has, make a story and relate an answer back to that problem via all the examples you give there's something special then to be had in that speech versus just talking about five gold medals because no one else got five gold medals, right?
1: Premise, problem, solution. Right. That's your magic formula. That's,
0: that's, the, that's, the, that's the sauce right there. <laughs> um, yeah. I wanna ask you a little bit of a personal question you don't have to answer specifically. You can if you want, you've already been candid with me. I'm just, I'm curious about it. When was the time where you gave a keynote and you got a check and you looked at that check that was like, wow, this is actually a check that I gave just for speaking. Was that, did that ever happened? Did you ever reach a figure amount on, on that check where you were just like, I can't believe for 45 minutes I just made this much amount of
1: money. Yeah. When I first went up to $25,000 for a keynote and got that first one, I thought I used to work a whole year and not make $25,000. Now, I just gave a 45 minute speech and they paid me 25 grand to do it.
0: I, I, like, was that just insane to you? Did, what like did, Do you think you have to give that money away? You think you wanna donate <laughs> some of that stuff? Like, like did you feel guilty you had that much money? Cause I don't know, I haven't really talked to speakers who, who have talked about their feelings when they first got their big payday after putting in all the hard work to get good at speaking.
1: Well, here's the advantage that I have. So I was doing all those marketing seminars, doing that high-level successful. Then I have my midlife crisis, and I say, that's it. Uh, And I retired. So I say, I'm just going to – that was at 40 I retired. Wow. So I say, I'm just going to race cars and play softball and drink out of a coconut. And so I do that for nine months and but i'm going crazy and then i i my friend bill gold who was the first president of the national speakers association he calls me up and he says we got to go to lunch i need to talk to you so all right so we meet show up we're having lunch and he says now bill he's passed away now at that time he was probably in his 70s um, we had met at the florida speakers association he just kind of was enamored with me. He kind of adopted me. So he was like my grandfather to me. So I idolized this guy. And he was an amazing, amazing speaker. Just brilliant. So he takes me to lunch and he says, you are the greatest speaker in the world. And I know because I used to be him. Right, And you have to get back on the platform. See, I'm getting goosebumps just every time I tell this story, It just because he meant so much to me. So, and I had been kind of uneasy. I was going crazy like this. uh, My life doesn't seem to have any meaning. And so I thought, this is a very long answer to your question, but I think it's really got some insights for the people watching. So I thought, you know, the stuff I really excited about is the principles of prosperity. At this point, I had written a five-book series on prosperity, and so I used to do these marketing seminars, and then I would try to sneak the prosperity concepts in the back door, right? And so after that lunch with Bill, I thought, well, you know, I could come out of retirement. I could come back and speak, and I don't have to do any programs on how to get a prospect's phone number. I don't want to do that ever again. I can do programs on prosperity and success. And so that's what I did when I came back in the space, I reinvented, and because that was my passion, studying the principles of prosperity. Yeah. So the answer to your question was, no, by the time I got $25,000 a speech, I was like, okay, I used to work, but then I was like, you know what? I'm worth 30, you know what? I'm worth 35, and I just kept upping the fee Because I felt like I was providing more value, solving more problems. And, and you know, the market was telling me that was true. Because the market will always tell you, right? If if people are, uh, you know, paying your fee, then you're worth the fee. If they're not paying the fee, you're not worth the fee. It's that simple.
0: No, I mean, I think that makes sense. You, you started this thing when you were like 30. By 40, you had done so phenomenal that you thought it was time to retire. Most people can't retire until 65, 68. In those 10 years, you had figured out retirement. And then I think the obvious things happens, which is a, a lack of purpose and meaning when you don't have work because work is where we spend most of our time. So it seems obvious that you were in a situation where you needed to figure out what you wanted to do with your life. And it seems like the obvious transition was not the teaching stuff because we had done teaching for so long. But rather it was the pure rock starness of speaking and getting your message out there and getting paid really well to do that. So, makes sense. Yeah, and it, it's you,
1: even now, I still see my, ultimately, if you ask me in my soul, intrinsically, who am I, what am I about, I'd say I'm a writer. I'm happiest when I'm hunched over my laptop in my lonely writer's garret writing my next book, right? right? But when you write books, people want to bring you in and have you speak about them. Absolutely. And so I had started as a speaker and I didn't write my first book until 96 or 97, I think. So I had been speaking for like 5 years. So I was a speaker who wrote and it kind of took me 20 years to figure it out, but I decided, you know what? I don't want to be a speaker who writes. I want to be a writer who speaks. Right. And so I kind of reinvented myself again with being an author as my primary you know, way to feed my cats and then um, speak as for the people who appreciate my books. So, Randy, doing
0: a... Uh a quick little psychoanalysis of your life so far in these 36 minutes. Um, it seems like you started speaking and doing training when you were in your 30s, which means, and, and it was kind of by accident, right? You kind of stumbled into it. Was there right. experiences from, you know, when you were 10 years old to 30 that allowed you to understand introspectively in your soul that I do have the confidence to speak and I am extroverted and I do know how to control a crowd, but you didn't have the opportunity until you were 30 to really let that out.
1: No, if we're going to really get into the psyche, here's the fascinating thing. I'm not an extrovert. I'm totally an introvert. Okay. You put me on a stage with 10,000 people. I got no problem at all because that's my stage. I own it. Okay. I control everything that happens from that stage. So 5,000, 10,000, it doesn't matter. You could put me anywhere. I don't care how many people are in the audience. I'm relaxed. I don't even get nervous. I don't have any stage fright, right? right? Because I didn't know you were supposed to. Remember, I was just doing this training for my people. I'm talking about how to be a supervisor. And then I other people going. so it's like I'd been doing it for like a year. And then somebody told me, how do you handle stage fright? And I was like, what is stage fright? They say, well, you know, when you get nervous before you go on stage. I was like, was I supposed to get nervous before I go on stage? I didn't realize that.
0: People take drugs?
1: And yeah. And then I did have an experience. The, the The first time I spoke to 5,000 people was in Dallas, Texas, at the Reunion Center. It has that big ball, I remember. it. So I didn't go on stage beforehand and do a stage check. I just looked at it from the, the chairs, from the outside. And then I got introduced and I got on the stage, I was at that lectern and there was 5,000 people and that was a little Whoa. freaky for me. So it took me about 30 seconds because I hadn't seen 5,000 people from that direction before. But once that happened, then I was okay. And then I made sure that every time I speak, I go on stage first and just see the view from the stage. Even backstage when the crowd is filling in, I'll go behind the curtains and look around and see. Um, and then so I don't have any, uh, any stage fright. Now, if you put me in an elevator with four people and I have to make small talk, I'll be petrified, um, okay? That's, why do, you know. Why, why do
0: you think that exists, though? How can you be on stage and is it something... Unique about owning the stage and not owning that elevator moment that makes this big dichotomy between how you because
1: on the stage I own my material ah. you'll you never have stage fright if you know what 's coming next right right so if you know uh, so if i 'm doing a keynote it doesn 't matter like I say fifteen thousand people I know what 's my main point, and I know the three stories that I chose to make the main point right so it could be the gunshot story, the how I made half a million dollars in 20 minutes story. It could be the uh, cat story. It could be the snowball story, whatever. All I got to remember is three stories. And of course, I own the stories because I've massaged them. I've crafted them. I've worked them over the years. Right. So I have this. And here's what every speaker you have to do. You have to have this mental file cabinet right here with all your stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So you got the time you got fired story. You got the time you learned to drive story. You got the time your girlfriend broke up with your story. You got the time your dog died story. You got the time you took the company public and made $10 million. You got the time you uh, climbed Mount Everest. And you know that the uh, climb Mount Everest story takes seven minutes and has humor in it. And you know that the XYZ story is four minutes. So then, when you plan your talk, you say, okay, here's my main point. Let me go to the file cabinet. Let me find the stories that make this point because I got 30 minutes or I got 45 minutes. And same thing, if you're getting, or they hired you to do the 45 minute keynote, and this happens all the time, right? You get hired for a 45 minute keynote. I look at the clock I'm supposed to go on at 1 p.m. It's now 1.30. I haven't gone on yet. Right. So because I'm a professional speaker instead of a public speaker, I'm going to go to a meeting planner and I'm going to say, hey, I need to know what's the highest value to you. Do you want my whole speech that you hired me for or do you want to get back on schedule? What's the best? And, and nine times out of 10, they say, oh, my God, if you could get me back on schedule, you would be my ultimate hero. So I'll take my 45-minute speech and turn it into a 30-minute speech, let's say. Right. And I know, okay, so I've got to cut 15 minutes. So that means I cut the red balloon story and the learn to drive story, and that gives me my 15 minutes back. So the audience, I don't say to the audience, okay, you gotta talk really fast because I was supposed to do 45 minutes and now they only gave me 30. Because now you made the meeting planner look like a jerk. Right. You made them look unprofessional, you made yourself look unprofessional. The audience can't know any of this happened. You're the craftsperson, right? The craftswoman, craftsman. So you know the length, you know the outcome you gotta give for that audience. So you do all that and you're using PowerPoints, you take those slides out that correspond with the stories that you're not going to give. So the audience, because if you say, oh, you know, forget these next five slides because I had to cut this story right away. Now the audience feels, oh, they cheated me. Yeah, he didn't tell that story. What did I miss? No, that comes out before the audience ever sees it. All they see for you is the professional delivering the outcome that the meeting planner hired you to do.
0: Yeah, that's 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 tangible. Really good stuff, Randy. I mean, it's I I like that you brought up the stories thing because for me, I'm trying to develop as a speaker, and I've noticed over the past year that when I get an idea, just because I'm I'm ingrained in this public speaking thing now, uh, and I have been since I was 13, but I didn't start thinking of it professionally in the, in, since the past couple of years. I take an idea that I get and I try to make it into a story, not with the intent of selling the story, but just I'm walking back and forth and I can walk back and forth for like two hours. That's what you're happy when you're writing, I'm happy when I'm pacing and thinking. And I'll just imagine uh, like a story, like I learned how to drive for the first time this summer. It was a really interesting experience. Ultimately, I figured out how to drive, but I crafted that story the day I got my license of like when I was gonna tell people how I first learned how to drive. And I think one of the things about speakers or just people who have, Messages to share is they automatically think can this turn into a book? Can this turn into a song? Can this turn into a speech not with any malicious or financial intent? But just with the pure intent to want to create the message and share it for the intrinsic value of sharing it, right?
1: Absolutely, Um, absolutely. You're in a doctor's office and he says Amit, you've got a tumor you have six months to live your first thought is well What's the keynote I'm going to get out of this? You know? It's just, you know, the car goes over the cliff. You say, well, there's some new material. It, exactly. you know?
0: <laughs> it, it's, it's unbelievable how much I've thought about it every day. And, and, and the mental uh, file cabinet that you're talking about stories. I think that's such a good thing for anyone listening to this podcast who does have stories to share is keep it in that file cabinet because you can take little stories and put them in different keynotes or take elements of the philosophical messages in those stories and incorporate them. And it just becomes this like walking encyclopedia of your life, which I think is one of the key things for fulfillment and happiness. It's like, if you know yourself, we always talk about self-actualization, right? Maslow hierarchy, that's the highest layer. Do you know yourself? Are you self-aware? The best way to know yourself and be self-aware is if you can c- c- communicate who, the, who you are, right? And yeah, having so- mental file of stories is important.
1: Here's practical application of this. So you guys watching Um, at the last speaker school I did. I have a lady there named Eugene, who's an amazing uh, speaker. And part of her history is she was she grew up in a gang in New York in a really rough neighborhood. And so that's part of who she is. So she's got that experience of being in a gang and now she's working in the corporate world, showing people how to, uh, you know, do important things. And so I actually brought her up as a hot seat in the speaker school because her issue was people would say, well, but we want you to tell your story, you know, come in, wear your black leather pants and your chains and your spiked up hair and the way you used to be. And, she said, I don't know how to, you know, how does that work? Because they want skill sets or they want content. And, and I said, so what we did is, that, you know, what I explained to her that I think was the real breakthrough, because she's got real talent. She's an amazing speaker. Was she just, was this concept of the file cabinet. Right. So I say, because what I told her, and this is true for everyone off watching, you don't have one story. You have a thousand stories. Yep. So when they say, we want your story. They don't know what they don't know. They don't even know what they're asking for, right? right. So what she, she's got to do is say, okay, I have the story that when I had to go get a girl because she had been having sex with one of the gang members who had a girlfriend, so I had to go get her and take her to the place where she was going to get beat up, right? Uh, That's a story, yeah. right? Then she had the, the, a story of she was... Uh, looking at a TV in a a, like a Best Buy and there was a woman on TV and she thought I could be on TV I could that was what I want to do I don't want to be in a gang I want to do that well that's a story and so you 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 come up with the concept of the story and then you craft it so you might need to tell that story 17 times before it really clicks Right. Some stories you have to tell eighteen, eighty seven times. Right. Some I have stories that I've told 500 times and they still getting better because I get to craft them and mold them a little. Oh, they laugh really hard when I said that one thing. Yep. So I need to bring that. Right. So that's what we do is we're just we're we're storytellers. That's the ultimate job of a speaker or a writer. I do the same thing when I write a book. Right. I'm crafting a story to make a point for the reader, just like I'm crafting a story to make a point for an audience member.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a beautiful thing to have stories in the back of your head. And, and that leads into a point I wanted to talk about, which is, have you ever used the concept of death as a way to help people get over the fear of speaking? And the, the reason why is I'll explain a little bit before I let you answer is one of the things i'm built uh, big on is is a brand i'm trying to build it's called mbm motivated by mortality and the midlife crisis you had at 45 or 40 i started having at 22 years ago where i was like shit i'm gonna die it's like when you finally recognize that you're conscious of the fact that you're not on this earth forever and at that moment i was like well i have to do something about it and i was a junior in college and i was like what does doing something about it means and business school is telling me go to work at goldman sachs go be an investment banker and i was like that's not doing something about it. That's not, or at least for me, that's not doing something about it. So that's when I started going on this whole introspective journey of like, uh-huh. what am I good at? Well, I've been speaking since I was 13. It's like, well, if I could get paid to do that, and even if I couldn't get paid a lot to do that, would I still want to do that? Would it be fulfilling and, and purposeful? The answer was overwhelmingly overwhelmingly yes. And I had to take a couple of years to really solidify that yes to be true. One of the things I think about at the intersection of mortality and speaking is that the variable of a purposeful life is communication, is, as we talked about, your ability to communicate the nature of your existence. And in order to do that, you need to know how to effectively speak up, how to effectively communicate. Uh-huh. You, you, I think people who are afraid of that, right, this whole stage fright thing that is a really big fear that people like you or me really never had, is that once you're conscious of your mortality, the fact that you're going to die one day, the fact that your time is limited, the fact that you have a finite amount of time to communicate your existence, to tell those stories, I think mortality becomes an overarching force that I think can inspire people to realize that the necessity to communicate their stories in order to find purpose and fulfillment is now. And it's meaningful to talk about death in the context of speaking at that point.
1: Okay, so a couple of things come to mind when you bring this up. Um, First of all, the stories that work are the stories that talk about stuff that matters, Yeah. right? So when I am working with a a new speaker or let's say it's the CEO who's got to give this address to the board of directors or something and they have no experience, I'm always looking for stories. And the way I find stories is I usually say, okay, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? Oh, my wife divorced me. Oh, my daughter died in a, from a drunk driver. Oh, I got fired. Or, oh, I, I bankrupted my company, right? Horrific stuff. I got, you know, my two family members got cancer and died last week, right? Because everybody automatically defaults to their best thing that ever happens to them story. Because they, you know, all those speakers who won the gold medals and climbed the mountains and did all that stuff. But usually the biggest payoff for the audience is the biggest mistakes you made, the right. biggest failures you make, right? So when we talk about bankruptcy and death and disease and divorce and shit that really matters, now we're going to connect with that audience on a soul-to-soul level. Right. But here's the, you know, the... The qualification is you're not allowed to use the audience for therapy. Right. right. So example, I was doing a program wherever. I don't know. I get in the hotel. The flight is delayed. I get in the hotel 1130 at night. I get in, plug in my laptop, pull up my email. I got a message from my sister. Grandma just died tonight. I got to be on stage at 9 a.m. the next morning, right? And they're expecting Pavarotti to sing the opera, right? They don't want to know my personal problems. They don't want to. And so I went and I delivered my program. And I never mentioned the fact that my grandmother had just died and that I was trying to emotionally process that. And the reason why, because that would be out of integrity as a profession. Because if I would have said what here's what a a public speaker would have said they would have said thanks for the nice introduction i i need to tell you right up front i got the news last night my grandmother died so i break down during this please be with me and you know send me love and energy and now i i'm using the audience for therapy i have no right to do that that's it's unethical to do that because they i've drawn them into that now I can tell that story now as to speakers, as an example, because I've emotionally processed the death of my grandmother and I can show the lesson for my audience in that, right? I'm not using it to be maudlin and get sympathy and hugs or a standing ovation from the audience. The story is relevant if, let's say I'm speaking to professional speakers, and explaining this concept, right? So that's the thing. So again, I always, I'm looking for the day you went bankrupt, the day you almost died, the day you, you know, blew up your marriage. If you've already processed that, and now you know the lesson for the audience, that's going to be this. There can be 24 speakers over two days. But that lady who tells the story of, And, you know, getting out of her abusive relationship with her husband and, you know, running out with her kids at 2 a.m. to the shelter, if she's processed that, that's the one they're going to remember, not the guy who says, "Okay, I've got the 27 secrets for how you make more money today. (laughs) Right. There's no connection there.
0: And and then uh, on top of that, do you think mortality, people confronting their mortality is a way to get them to get over their fear of communication?
1: Um, I almost feel like you're using a bazooka to kill a mouse with that. I don't think you need to go that far. Like I say, I think the fear, the reason people have fear on stage is because they don't know what's coming next. Right. So their fear is I'm going to get up in front of all those people. My mind is going to go blank And then they're all going to laugh at me and think I'm an idiot because I'm stammering and stuttering and I don't know what to say. But if they if they own their material and they know what they're going to say, I don't think they have that fear of of the stage. I just think it goes away.
0: Interesting. So you think the fear is a little bit less mindset philosophical. It's much more like, do, do I know what I'm going to say? Once I know what I'm going to say, that fear kind of goes away. Now I can get on stage and I can talk. And
1: I, not that yeah, concerned. and if they've had a proper training, in other words, if they know how to craft a story, if they know how to weave in humor, if they know how to use a case study or an example, in other words, there are, if they know how to use a microphone, right? right. If, think of how many speakers are, they're just shouting at the audience because they see 800 people and they think they have to talk like this for an hour because they're so, but they don't understand there's a microphone there. If you learn to let the microphone do the work, because if it, it, the, the, you know, the, what I always tell speakers is variety, thrill, sameness, kills. Yeah. So if you go and you do your whole speech in this nice, calm, moderated voice for an hour, you're just gonna put people into a coma. Yep. But if you yell at them for an hour, you're gonna give them a headache. Right. So variety of thrills. So we need to modulate. Sometimes we need to speed it up. Sometimes we need to slow it down. Sometimes we need to take a pause, right? And so when we learn how to use the microphone, so if we teach people those skill sets, then they're not nervous up on stage because, again, they, they own it. They know what they've got to say. They know the value of what they've got. They know how this is going to help the audience. So they don't even think of that stuff.
0: The last two questions for you. Um so you when you started getting uh keynote speeches and you started getting big checks for giving keynotes, were you going through like a speaker agent and what is your opinion on the business of speaker bureaus and speaker agencies?
1: Well, speaker's bureaus and I hate to say this cuz they're all going to hate me and a lot of them represent me, but I mean they're going to be extinct. You know, the internet kills the middle person in everything. Yeah. So, um like the thing I'm really concentrating on in 2020 is voice right. because this little thing, I don't want to say her name, but this Amazon Echo device yeah. next to me or the one you just said, that's how people are going to buy everything within a couple of years. So it won't even right now we're trying to come up on the Google searches, but Understand those searches are going to turn to audio, right? So that's why I'm, I created a sonic logo for myself. I'm really pushing my podcast. I'm really, you know, I kind of killed, I didn't kill it off, but I stopped really putting, I used to do a video every week on my YouTube channel. Now I'm putting that energy into podcasts. Why? Because podcasts are voice. So, um, the, so people are just going to go to, a a voice device to get their speakers. They're not going to go through. I mean, there will always be just like, I still have a travel agent that I've used for literally 40 years, but I'm like one person in 25 billion who uses a travel agency, right? Everybody else just goes to Orbitz or hotels.com or, you know, whatever discount uh, website or app. Um, And that's how it'll go with speakers bureaus. They're going to be extinct. So, um, you have to know how to work with them. And that's a pretty detailed question that so we don't have time for. But you, you, you know, if you want to get represented by them, you have to know how to service them and have uh, bureau friendly materials that they can use. And you need to maintain fee integrity. They got to know that they're not offering you to a client for 35,000. And then you're going direct to the client and say, well, if you book with me direct, I'll do it for only 25, because I don't have to pay the bureau, right, right. you know, not going to touch you. But if you're just starting out as a speaker, I wouldn't even waste two minutes worrying about bureau. I would say, how do I develop my tribe? What's the platform that I can migrate them to that I own? What kind of content will provide solve problems and add value to that tribe so I can create a steady stream of candidates who want to buy my services, you know, and then we go to that question I proposed at the beginning of the discussion, which is, okay, at this point in my career, how much of my, whatever, what is my day? Like for me, I like to work 10 hours a day, right? With a break, I do my workout and have lunch and whatever, but it's 10 hours. I want to work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Right. And my night is free and I can do all the social stuff that real people do. But I love my work. I want to be writing most of the day, right? Um, but I got to know what percentage of that am I promoting my blogs, promoting my podcast, doing a podcast with Amit. You know, to, uh, you know, what, you know, what's that percentage? So you've got to think about that. Where am I at in my career? So how much time do I need to devote to that? And then again, how's the best way I reach my tribe doing that? Is it blogging? Is it podcasting? Is it um, being a guest blogger? Is it uh, posting on the Huffington Post? Is it getting a syndicated column with newspapers? Is it getting a syndicated radio show? you know, whatever it is. Right.
0: All right. Awesome. My last question to you, and this is an easy question. I ask this to everyone who's on the podcast. Are you happy right now in life?
1: I'm very happy right now in life.
0: Okay. That's good. That is very good. Everybody, Um, that was Randy Gage, correct? Randy Gage. uh, He is a Hall of Fame speaker, speaking to over 2 million people from 50 countries, a professional public speaker. Randy, tell them where they can find you on social, and then we'll be out.
1: Yeah. Best place to get me is Twitter. That's where I respond most. Randy underscore Gage. Uh, And then my website is RandyGage.com. I mean, you'll find me on all the social. I have a blog, a podcast, but um, the, you know, Twitter and RandyGage.com best place to find me.
0: All right. Thank you everybody for coming into another episode of the Public Speaker Podcast. We will see you next week.